Good morning. I'm, I'm 52 years old and I still don't remember that when you insert batteries that the, the sticky out end goes on the opposite end from the springy um, insert part. So I was like, I can't turn my microphone on. I just kept turning it and turning it. Finally, I checked the batteries and had one reverse. So um, probably y'all have moments like that um, each and every day. Um, I looked out and I looked over here and I thought, maybe I've developed a spitting problem because the first two rows are empty, and Beth is brave, but she's far over here to the side. But there's this big gap back there, so um, maybe I need to face this way more, and we'll see if I do have a spitting problem. You guys will move back further, and I'll have that verified. But if I do, please tell me, because I want to know. But um, I want to welcome you this morning to Cross Timber. It is great to be here in the house of the Lord together to sing a declaration of the wonders of a mighty God that we um, have the privilege of loving and serving and worshiping. And so we gather together in the, the name of Jesus to lift high and to magnify the Lord. And each one of us is a part um, this morning of a, a small section of a choir that is going to one day gather um, in heaven and spend eternity singing um, glory to God around the throne. And so this is hymn practice um, this is choir practice for when we get to heaven, so sing out, um, sing to the Lord, and, um, and also just enjoy the service. It's a pleasure to see you this morning. Um, we're getting toward the end of summer, only in the sense that school is preparing to start. We still have um, summer in, in weather patterns to continue for a while, and so that for some just means things kind of get back to normal. Um, vacations close down and things kind of settle in, and so I know people are in and out and traveling and visiting folks, but we are we're glad that you are here this morning. Let me just welcome you um, to Cross Timber let you know that um, if you're visiting, it is good to see you. If you're, welcome, if you're a regular folks, welcome back. And just please take advantage of the little tan card that is in the bulletin to share information and to let us know about prayer requests. If there's something we can pray for, we love to, to pray for those things as well. Just have a couple of things um, to mention before Glenna comes and tells us about um, the upcoming Ladies Connect, and you can start finding John chapter 10 in your Bibles because we'll be reading there from just a moment. Um, first thing, I just want to remind you about men tomorrow morning, 6.30 at the Elk Diner, men's breakfast. Um, it's a good opportunity. Um, it's, a, it's a new month, so it's a good time to, to start. Um, we would love to see you there for that time of fellowship and food, 6.30 at the Elk Diner. And then also just another reminder, we're back into the swing of things on Wednesdays, Bible study at um, 11 o'clock. Um, we are currently working through um, several weeks. We'll be looking at the topic of heaven, and then after that we'll be looking at angels. So if you are interested in that and you have opportunity during the week, it's 11 o'clock on Wednesdays. Um, during the month of August there will be no lunch, but starting in September um, we'll follow that 11 o'clock time up with a lunch. So um, be looking forward to that, and we hope you can um, attend. And then also Wednesday evenings um, we join together, gather for, for prayer at 6.30 here at the building. We have a cool spot, a quiet spot away from um, 
the cares of the world, and we gather together, we share from God's Word, and we pray. So if you are able and willing, we would love to have you be a part of that. And maybe if it's something you haven't um, done in the past, maybe you'll give it a try. Maybe it'll become a regular part of your schedule. Now, Glenna is going to come and tell um, us and the ladies about what's coming up at the next Ladies Connect. This uh, Thursday night, we're going to have a speaker. Tony Peters is the regional, I think, I don't know what her title is, with Upbring. That's the, it is a Lutheran social services, uh, but that's where we send all the suitcases. And if you have one, an extra one you found, after we took them up, you can bring it, because we're going to give it to her to take with her. But she's going to tell us, because it's more than, it's fostering and adoption and taking care of kids who have uh, aged out of the foster care system. So come and find out what they do, and we can help them. They're Christians, too, so we can help them also. 6.30. 30 on Thursday. So thank you, Glenn. I'm sure you'll want to be a part of that. Our scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 10. As we look at verse number 14, we'll read through verse 18, and then we'll skip over and begin reading in verses 27 through 30, before the deacons come and um, we receive our offering. John chapter 10, beginning with verse number 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. And then verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Gentlemen, will you come as we receive our offering? Join with me in prayer, please. Our Father God in heaven, we come before you this morning, worshiping you, giving you honor and praise, for you deserve it all. We thank you for your love that you've provided for us. And dear Lord, we know what you give us each and every day, and we want to give back just a portion of that. We ask that you would be with our service today, be with Brother Rusty as he delivers your message to us, open our ears, that we may hear and understand what you are telling us. Be with our worship team as they lead us in that worship, dear Lord. And we pray in your Son, Jesus' blessed name. Amen.
would you stand with us and sing this morning?
Hebrews chapter 6 is where you can turn in your Bible and while you're turning there let me just share with something share something with you that I read this week that was I found interesting and maybe you will it was just a, a survey of what attracts people to visit a church and I was really um, impressed that there was one single thing that stood out far above the others. I mean, nothing was even close. I mean, it just it, it blew you know past the, the very minor um, fact that you know you you have you know the preacher invites somebody more than having a social media presence, more than even having a, a systematic you know you know way of contacting folks in your in your neighborhood. None of those things are bad. All of them should happen. But all of those only combined to, in total, represent 14% of people responding to why they would visit a church. 86% of people responded that the reason that they would attend or would most likely attend a church is because someone personally asked them. A friend simply said to them, hey, would you like to come to church with us? And it was just a great reminder of the fact that in this age of technology, in this age of 
of smoke and fancy music and all that stuff that we, you know, we, we intend to attract people and impress people, that really what it's down to is personal relationships. Inviting somebody. And so here's my challenge for you this week. It may be, it may have been a long time since you invited someone to church. Now I'm not going to say invite ten people, that would be great. But just find one person that you're in contact with, and you know none of you are hermits. You're all in contact with people during the week. But just invite one person. And say, hey, you know what? You know I go to church at Cross Timber. I don't know if you have a church home, but I'd love if you would come and join me. In fact, there's room, and you can sit with me. And let's just see what happens, because that's 86 percent. And so if we're relying on the other things, and we're way missing out on the potential that God has for us to reach out to people. And don't underestimate what influence you have in being a friend and being a person that is available and is there for those around you. God can use you and he will use you for his purposes when you are willing and available. A great way to do that if you need something to put in your hand is there's these cards. They're out there by the little welcome table that Mel mans so wonderfully every week. It has our church address, church phone number, the website, and it has the times of Bible study and worship. And so if you want to put something in your hand, and here's just a reminder to tell you where we're at and what time we start. There's plenty of these. If we run out of those, I've got more available. Um, Just use these. It's a great way if you want to put something into somebody's hand. Hebrews chapter 6, as we continue our our study this morning, we're going to look at just the, the affirmation to feel sure of better Things. But I wanted to ask a question, as I, as I often do. When you got up this morning, when you woke up, what were you thinking? Now, some of us were like, do I really have to get up this morning? Or you get that, oh no, here we go again. It's the same stuff. It's a different day. Or maybe some of you just wake up bright and cheery and you're singing, you know, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made, and your spouse or the other people in the house are like, shh, can you hush, I'm trying to sleep. I'll rejoice and be glad. It's going to be a great day. Different people wake up in different conditions in the morning, but I want you to know that no matter the day, God has better things in store for you and me if we're ready. And for the life of the Christian, our focus should always be on those better things. That's a a key word through the book of Hebrews. The main theme is Jesus is better than anything, but God has better things. There's good work for us to be involved with as we join God in His work around us, as we allow His Spirit to work through us, as His fruit is produced. We rely on His strength that works in us, His faithfulness that we can lean on when we don't feel like it, that we have the ability to stick with it when we don't want to, and when we fall back into the grumbling and complaining, we can lean into His joy that fills our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as we move forward, we grow in our faith, confident that there are better things ahead. There's something waiting over the horizon that we're not arrived, we haven't arrived at yet, but we're headed toward, and that is that place that is a place of promise, a place of pray, a place of rest, a place that is better and more wonderful than even the words that, that John tried to put down in John in, in Revelation could describe. But alongside of that, the realities of life come crashing in around us. There's challenges. We face temptations. We hear lies whispered to us from the enemy. And we sustain continued attacks from 
the enemy. And we need to, to daily prepare ourselves by, by praying and putting on the armor and make sure we are in the right condition. And just as equally dangerous is our own natural propensity to sin, to rebel, to doubt God, to, to be unwilling to listen to His Word because we're afraid of what He's going to tell us. Now in Hebrews, the author has already warned the readers and warned us that we should pay close attention because it's possible to drift. That we shouldn't harden our hearts and miss out on the rest that God has provided for us. And then most recently, be careful not to be dull or hard of hearing, but rather move on toward maturity. And this week, continuing on what we started last week, the idea is don't fall away. Continue to grow and be diligent in your faith till the end. And in the end, the last days, the genuineness of your faith will be displayed. God has better things for us. He doesn't want us to miss out. He says, hold on to the end and inherit the promise. So as we look at what would many term to be a perplexing and difficult passage of Scripture, I want us to hold this thought in mind the entire time. Genuine salvation produces spiritual fruit, joyful diligence, and hopeful assurance. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 that we read last week, and we'll read down through verse number 12, and then we'll pray and we'll look at these verses together. Hebrews 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed and its, and, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have this full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Lord, we ask this morning that through faith and patience that we, by faith in your Son, be counted among those who inherit the promises. Lord, help us to see what is necessary to be found diligent and not dull. To hold fast and to not slip away. 
and to not merely stand still in our lives, but to move on toward maturity. We trust you to help in this. It's your word, and by your spirit, you teach. And so we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we come upon a section of Scripture that really starts in verse 4 and and goes down through verse 8 that is often challenging, hard to understand, and in some cases maybe even misapplied. It raises questions for many. It causes alarm in some. And the question comes in the front of your mind, if it's not there already, is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? Related to that is the question, what does true salvation look like? Or you may find yourself like I was this week, am I even really asking the right question of the passage? But I want you to understand this, that the author's main intention is to encourage genuine Christians to remain faithful, continue on to maturity in the midst of persecution and challenges. First century Christianity was not for the faint at heart. They had left the Judaism that they once knew. And so they were being persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders. They were living in a harsh culture of Roman influence that was chasing down and killing and harassing Christians at every opportunity. And so with that in mind, there was always the temptation to throw in the towel and say it's simply not worth it. But I want us to see that the pattern of the verses this morning, there's a warning, and it's very stark. There's an example that helps us understand the warning, and then it ends with encouragement. Now along the way, as we look at that, hopefully we'll, we'll gain some insight about the challenges and the difficulties of the passage. More importantly, we'll see the very heart of the message of the author and how that can apply to us today. Three points in your bulletin. I'll tell you right now that I'll spend much more time on the first point than I will on the second two, so don't lose heart. If you look up at your watch and say, my goodness, he's still on point one, two and three will come much more quickly. But the first thing we need to see is it's a warning to the spiritually dull. So throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this regular rhythm, there's teaching, there's theology, there's encouragement, and then there's warning when necessary. So it's really a balanced approach to a a healthy church family. And so what we see in verses 4 through 12 is connected to what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 3, and that's indicated by the little word for in your Bible. There's a, a link there. It's connected together. And the goal of that first few verses and the ones we're looking at today is to move those believers on toward maturity. To either eradicate or to move beyond the barrier that exists of spiritual dullness, that hard of hearing that we looked at last week that is often a self-inflicted loss of hearing. To do away with that sluggish, lazy attitude toward our faith to to put away apathy toward God's Word and to move forward. To not forget the basics, but to build on those basics and to mature in Christ. And so with those things in the front of our mind, the author moves on 
and offers up a very stern warning. And if you really look at the verses there, 4 through 6, the main clause that stands out, and I'm reading this from the, the old NIV, is it is possible if they fall away, it is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Now around those that phrase, there are different participles that help us describe, and we'll hopefully unpack those. But you can already see that in just hearing that sentence that this can be confusing and controversial. It's hard to understand. There's tons of differing viewpoints. You can find people that, that you respect. You know, people that, that have written many books, that have ministries that are on the internet and on television, that have differing viewpoints. The translation of some of these words is open to interpretation. Scholars just aren't sure exactly what they mean. Then we have our own personal problems that many times when we open our Bibles and we read, we see what we want to see in the passage based on what we want to be true or believe to be true. And sometimes we move very quickly from the meaning of one small word into making large theological assumptions. And sometimes that word that we hold everything upon can be debatable about the meaning. While there are probably many more than four views, um, I, I tried to boil it down to four major views. Um, you can find many more of how to approach this passage. Some would say that this tells us that true Christians can once be saved and then lose their salvation. Now, if you're a Baptist, that just rolls up your Baptist gut. And you want to say, nope, once saved, always saved. That's very, this is very much an Arminian perspective, that salvation can be gained and lost. Now, some people would say, no, this is written to not true Christians. These are folks that claim to be or acted like Christians, but really never were. They may have had some level of experience with, with church and with religious things, but they never really had a personal relationship with Jesus. So at the other end of the spectrum, you have that perspective that many that would follow um, Calvinism would find, that these people weren't really even true believers. Now, some kind of punt and say, this is just hypothetical. It's just an extreme, impossible situation that the author creates to gain attention, to, to help him in his argument. And then there are those that say that it, it's written to true Christians, and the, the urging in the passage is for them to show that their faith is genuine by moving on to maturity. Another way to say that is the faith they profess will be tested over time by whether they are faithful until the end. Now along with those, and that can be cumbersome, we have to remember that the best way to interpret Scripture is Scripture. Now, there's a lot of great writers, there's a lot of good commentaries, but there's nothing better than Scripture. So when you're thinking, okay, can I lose my salvation, or if I'm saved, am I always saved? Well, we need to read around and find out what the rest of the Bible says about that. A good concordance is helpful. The great news is you don't have to have one of those things that's like, you know, 12 inches, you know, 12 or 14 inches tall, 6 inches thick, and weighs about 8 pounds, and just 
you'd rather leave on the shelf because it's just too big to deal with. You can go online and find all sorts of concordances. You can search how many times a word shows up in the Bible. Or if you happen to have one, I got one when I was probably a junior in high school. I got a Thompson Chain um, reference Bible. It was kind of like um, you know the online study Bible before you could have online. You can it just chases topics all the way through Scripture. It's another good tool. But Scripture is the best commentary for Scripture. The other thing to keep in mind is when we are interpreting Scripture that we have to take into consideration the context, starting with the immediate context. What are the verses around that particular section of Scripture say? Likely there is a connection there. And then we take that and expand it. What is the chapter around it saying? What is the book saying? And then you measure that against what the entire Bible says. And from that, you form your opinion on the passage. All the while, keeping in mind that you can't lose sight of the forest for the trees. You have to find the main idea of the passage first. It's easy to chase rabbit trails because some of this stuff is really interesting. And there's a lot of pages written. There's a lot of um, arguments out there. So I found myself Wednesday just really just confused. I thought Monday was pretty good. Tuesday was even, you know, a little bit better. But by Wednesday, I realized, okay, I know less today than I knew on Monday. And I, and I just was, was suffering from, from brain overload, that information, you know, um, overload. And, and so I just, you know, Deborah encouraged me. I prayed, and, and I, just, I, I just, I wrote down, you know, and, and I can tell you I'm not a profound person. Profound things don't come from me. If it's profound, it comes from the Lord. And I just wrote this down. Don't let the particulars that you don't understand distract you from the true purpose of the passage. And that's my encouragement to you and from the Lord. Don't let the particulars that you don't understand distract you from the true purpose of the passage. And in this case, it's to move on to maturity. Now, in this, in these verses, um, as we don't necessarily go verse through verse, but we look at some words, there's some important words that we have to explore the meaning of if we're going to try to reach an understanding of what the writer's talking about. The first word is impossible. It's the first word in the Greek. It's very important. It's front-loaded at the sentence to, to show emphasis, and it just simply means something that cannot happen. Impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, we serve a God that specializes in making the impossible possible. But here we have a situation that simply cannot happen impossible. The next phrase is fallen away. You'll see that there in your, in your Bibles. It's the, the Greek word parapipto. It means to turn aside or to deviate from something, to wander away or to err. Many Christians, preachers, scholars, refer to it as apostasy. And you'll hear sermons, there's lots of sermons about apostasy, and, and I'll tell you, you know, right now, I, I don't think that this is necessarily speaking about apostasy. And the main question I have is if, you know, the author was talking about apostasy, he could have easily used the word for apostasy. There's a word, apostasia. And it's not used here, which means a deliberate abandonment of truth. An apostate is somebody who just says, this stuff's not true anymore. As John Stott says, an apostate is somebody that changes sides 
from the side of the crucified to that of the crucifier. And then Ian Murray, another writer, says that that moving, that abandonment from truth always is accompanied by a movement toward unholiness and worldliness. So the word means to, to fall away or to drift, and it's a result of not holding fast. Remember we looked at that word, to, to tie off your you know, ship so it doesn't drift downstream. And Already in chapter 1 through 4, we're told to hold fast to what? Our confidence, our confession, and to our assurance. So fall away. Also, the word enlightened means to originally to, to shine light on something, to reveal it clearly. The older, the older I get and the more challenging it becomes to read small print, the more I realize light's important. And brighten, you know, enlightening a page can make small print much more visible. But in this case, it's speaking about exposure to the truth about Jesus. The truth that we are called to receive by faith, and when we do receive, it transforms us. verse you may want to jot down about enlightenment, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, you won't see it on the screen. For God who said, light, light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What did Jesus say? I'm the light of the world. And it's modified by once. It says there once enlightened. So the sense there is that there was a, a one time, once and for all, in enlightenment. Once. It's not once upon a time like way back when, but it's, it's a single instance. Taste it. Another word that's open to interpretation, the basic meaning is to experience something. Some would say, to defend their argument, that it means to put something in your mouth but not to actually eat it. Indicating a partial type experience. But the sense of the word is a full and total experience. It's the same word when it speaks about Jesus tasting death. Jesus really died. He didn't just experience some you know, near-death experience. He died. The full experience was His, and God raised Him. And in these verses, the believer experiences the heavenly gift, the blessings that come with salvation. They experience the good Word of God, the Word that is good, the Word that transforms, the Word that teaches and brings light, and also the powers of the world to come, the spiritual work that God does in our world, the miraculous, the transformations that take. But then there's also this word shared, or your translation may say <clears throat> partake, and that word is, um, is metokai, it means to partner with or share with someone in a task, to participate in something with someone else. It describes someone in this passage who has a, a close association with the Holy Spirit. It's the great challenge of Christianity that when we are saved, God gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit, but we are continually called to walk with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because God wants us to cooperate willingly to walk alongside Him as He leads us and He, he guides us. We share in that as we participate with 
the Spirit in God's working. So those are some words. Let me just tell you that these are, these are my thoughts, and if you don't agree, that's, that's fine. It's okay to have your own. But I, really, I believe that these verses are addressed to professing Christians. I mean, if you look at the description in verses 4 to 5, each one describes a Christian experience. The light of Jesus has shined into their lives. They've tasted the blessings of God's saving word. They've experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced the goodness of God's word and the power, his power at work. They've experienced salvation, and the author is now concerned about their growth. Why? Because the culture they were in was against them. Their own flesh fought against them. The persecution from both the Romans and the Jews would be a great hindrance. And they were being tempted to take the easy way out. And so he warns them, he urges them, he encourages them to hold fast and to press on toward maturity. Now, in general, there are three types of people in churches on any given Sunday all across the world. There's those who are, who are not saved, those that haven't put their faith in Christ. You know, they could be just an attender, they could be a seeker, they could even be a member, but they haven't put their faith in Christ. There's those that have had an experience of salvation, they're a saved person, but they're not maturing in their faith. They're still, like we talked about last week, babes in Christ. And then there's those saved persons who are moving forward, pressing on toward maturity. Now here's the catch. No one but God knows the true condition of the human heart. So we can't look around and just start checking off boxes. Save, save, not save, save but not growing, save but maturing. Now we do see evidences of those things, but no one knows for sure because as one writer wrote, no witnesses have ever been present at the point of God's work of conversion inside the human heart. It's God and the other person. Now we see fruit of that, but we don't see the actual transformation. But Jesus knows. The Bible tells us that Jesus knows the exact number of the sheep that are his. That they know his voice, as we read earlier. They follow his lead, and not one of his sheep will be lost. He gives them eternal life, and as we read in John 10, not one of his sheep will perish. Now what does that inform us to? This is the truth. If a true Christian man or woman, somebody that's one of Jesus' sheep, falls away, drifts from the faith, they will turn back. However, if a man or woman turns away and does not come back, we can say that it's equally true that they were Never true believers. And with this in mind, the fate of those who claim to be Christians and then turn away is very serious. And there's reason to be alarmed or to have fear. Verse 6, listen to this phrase. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. George Guthrie, commentator who wrote these New International um, Life Application Commentary, on this book, said this, says it this way to help us understand it. If a person rejects Christ, there's nowhere else to go for repentance. There's no one else. Salvation is found in no one else than in Jesus. 
you reject Jesus, there's nowhere else to go, no matter what the world says. So repentance is impossible. It can't happen if a person rejects Christ. And it's a serious condition, and he emphasizes it by the rest of the verse. Listen to this. Since they are crucifying again the Son of God to who to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Think of it this way. Jesus, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died for our sins. He was the once and final sacrifice, as we see, as we'll read through Hebrews. He died so that we could have life, and there's no other, there's no need, there's no possibility of Jesus ever being crucified again. However, the phrase identifies those believers who fall away and don't repent right beside that angry mob that mocked Jesus and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. As Hagner said. And so while Jesus can't be crucified again, it's impossible, those who turn away and don't come back figuratively crucify Jesus and bring shame upon his name in front of others. So it's figurative language. Now, I know this is its heavy. It's hard to understand. It's easy to get confused. But please hear this. There's nothing wrong with a healthy amount of fear in the life of a Christian. Think about it this way. Most many of you have owned or handled firearms your entire life. Like rule number one, they'll always teach you is always treat a gun like it's what? Loaded. Always treat a gun like it's loaded. Why? Because you never know. That's equally important to the day one novice as it is to the 50-year hardened police veteran or military service there should always be a healthy, fearful respect for the firearm that you have. And in like manner, in our faith, we should always have a reverential fear, not a fear that leads to trembling, but a fear that leads to awe and wonder that keeps us on the path and holding on to Jesus. Now, if you want to, if you are honest, and, and I will be honest, I, I'll admit there are several times that I have chosen not to do something simply because I was scared of what God might do. I wasn't motivated by, you know, some kind of reverence or some kind of level of holiness. I was just flat out scared. Same thing happened when I was a teenager. There were things I didn't do, not because I didn't want to, but I was afraid of what my mom and dad would do. I was afraid of the consequence of that. And so a healthy level of fear is is healthy. And the author's purpose here is to present that situation to challenge us to say, grow up, move on to maturity. And we're about to move on to point number two. And in verses seven and eight, what we have is a picture of the circumstances discussed. He gives us an illustration and he borrows it from agriculture to contrast the difference between those who go on to maturity and those who fall away. And to remind us that genuine salvation always produces a useful harvest and is blessed by God. 
And so point two, you have a useful crop, a blessing from God. So first he gives us the example of someone who continues to maturity. Look at verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. And then verse 8, he gives us the picture of the worthless field, describing those who fall away and do not repent. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to the end, near to being cursed, and it is in the and its end is to be burned. And so you have this comparison between a useful crop and a worthless crop. Now both had equal opportunity. The rain fall, the rain fell on both. The sun shined on both. Just like Jesus said, the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. The difference between the two was in what was produced. One field produced a useful crop. It was fruitful. There was evidence of God at work. There was evidence that there was His blessing involved in the process. Now the other was worthless. Produced thorns and thistles. Now I'm I'm not happy about it, but my pasture come about May was a thistle farm. Um, accented by these yellow bitterweeds. And I fought them and won some victory over the thistles, but never gained victory over the bitterweed. But those plants in a field are useless. In fact, they're beyond useless. They're, they're harmful. And in this field, full of thorns and thistles, since there was nothing there to be valued, it was close to being cursed, and it was destined... To be burned. So the fruitful ground was good soil, we could say. It responded to the rain, the sun, and the seed, and it produced a crop that was useful. And we'll look at what useful it might be in just a second. And the intention of our author is be good soil, be receptive to the word of God, the seed that is sown, be ready to grow, have soft hearts that are like well tilled ground. And be conscious of the need to practice repentance and confession. It's like pulling up weeds or spraying weed killer, I guess, if you can afford that. And so the author encourages us to move on to maturity. He gives us an example of what that maturity looks like. And he does this because the phrase there we see is that we feel sure of better So verse 9, if you read that, though we speak in this way, and he's talking about the harsh warning that he's given about falling away, yet in your case, transitioning, pivoting, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He's confident that they're going to move forward to maturity. And he says those better things are things that belong to salvation. So we see the warning has a purpose. This urgent warning in verses 4 through 8, the strongness of the language is to motivate them to move forward. And now that he's done so, he expresses love and confidence. Yet in your case, beloved. You can also translate that word dear ones or dear friends. It's the first and only time he uses it in the book. 
He says, I have confidence in you. Listen to this verse in the New Living Translation. Dear friends, even though we're talking like this, we really don't believe that it applies to you. But feel sure of better things. Feel sure. The writer's made up his mind. His confidence level is high. His convictions are settled. He knows that better things are in the future. Better, the key word that we, we talked about often, better than falling away and being worthless bearing a worthless harvest, what lies ahead based on the salvation they have in Jesus, His keeping power. He says they are blessed, they're not cursed. And He fully expects them to enjoy a productive spiritual life. Don't you, don't you find that those that were the best and most powerful encouragers in your life were those that didn't see you as you were but spoke to you about what you could become. It's God's Word. Now, God's Word is honest, and it calls us what we are, sinners. It calls us to repentance. But as we read the pages of Scripture, it speaks about what God intends us to become because He sees the things that we were never intended to be. He sees how they break His heart. It ruins our lives. He wants to bring transformation. He wants to bring the better things the things that belong to salvation. Because the faithful Christian is like a fertile field that produces a harvest. There will be spiritual fruit. Now, while we did grow thistles very well, and we're still in the process of growing bitter weed, evidently it requires no rain, um, our garden was kind of a hit and miss struggle. We had lots of tomatoes. I did something right with tomatoes this year. We had a few cum- few cucumbers, a few peppers. We got one spaghetti squash, which was excellent. We enjoyed it. And we got one single honeydew melon. Same dirt, same amount of rain, almost the same amount of water. Um, that was dependent on the hose as it got drier and drier. But I tell you that to tell you that the The amount of spiritual fruit can differ from Christian to Christian, but there's always some fruit present. You may not have as much fruit as you want, but if there's some fruit present, keep from some fruit present, keep going, keep making progress. And that fruit is the product of God's faithfulness to us and our obedience. And verse 10 tells us that God would see the fruit of their faith. He wouldn't forget about them, and He would give them a reward accordingly. How does He describe that fruit? He uses love and work or service. That the love of God they had on the inside was expressing it on the outside. Or taking that great commandment of Jesus, love God with everything you got, and love your neighbor as yourself. So they were doing well in love. And then their works of works or service, it's the same word that they used to to get the word deacon or servant, that there was a display of good deeds toward others. That idea of doing what you can with what you have to those around you. And so the author sees that their love and service was bringing glory to God and was benefiting others, and it was continuing. He says, as you still do. So he wasn't saying, that's in the past, but it's gone now, but you're still doing those things. And so continue on and be diligent in your faith. Verse 11 
share the same earnestness. So it's the polar opposite of that dullness, that hard of hearing. The Living Bible translated, translated, translates it, I can't even say it, this way. Keep right on loving others as long as life lasts so that you will get your full reward. So he says, just keep right on doing it. Don't slow down. Because there's full assurance of hope at the end. The author has trust in God. He sends that in writing to the readers. God is faithful to bring about all that He promises. Think about Abraham. Says he hoped against hope. My paraphrase, Abraham, you're old. You don't have any kids. Your wife's old. You don't have any kids, but you're going to have a son. And not only that, you're going to be the father of many nations. And you're going to take, I'm going to take you from the land you're in, take you to the land that you don't know about. And he had hope that God's promises were true, and he had hope that there was a land waiting for him. He wasn't dull. He wasn't sluggish. He listened. He obeyed. He wasn't perfect, but he kept moving forward. And the writer says, keep moving forward and imitate those that have already inherited or will inherit the promises. So follow the example of faithful followers from the past. Those that displayed faith and patience. Faith to trust. Patience to wait. Trusting in God all along the way. And that would help them to be joyfully diligent. Now what I mean by that, that they would love and serve with an eye on pleasing Jesus. When we have our motivation in our mind of pleasing Jesus first and helping others second, then we can find joy in whatever we do. But along with that, there's also this hopeful assurance that we can live with purpose today here on earth with an eye on the glorious future that waits. And the result, the end of the road, is we inherit the promises. Several weeks ago, we looked at that generation that walked right up to the edge of God's land of promise. They sent ten men in to look. They sent those twelve men in. Two came back and said, hey, we can do it. Let's go. The other was like, no, we can't do it. We shouldn't do it. They're big. They're strong. They've got big cities, and we're just like grasshoppers to them. And what was required? To listen to their God, to trust in Him, to obey Him, to take the land and inherit it. And what happened? History tells us that they were hard of hearing. They were disobedient. And they fell short of what God intended. And you might be sitting here right now and you're just on the edge of stepping into that blessing that God has. And that might be the next chapter of your life as you transition from one life stage to another, whether that be from, from work to retirement, from, from school to adulthood, launching out in, into college, or, or maybe just you know kids going off and you have extra time, to, to just stand on the edge of jumping in to the depths of God's love and enjoying a great adventure of faith. God says better things are ahead for you, and there are seasons of fruitfulness ahead. There is joy and blessing and hope all around you. And if the author of the book of Hebrews were 
standing before us today, he might say to us, Dear ones, will you listen to God's voice? Will you respond with faith? Will you do what he asks? Will you move on to maturity and will you inherit his promise? Because genuine salvation produces spiritual fruit, joyful diligence, and hopeful assurance. This passage both warns us and encourages us, reminds us that falling away is a reality. Repentance is always available. And maybe today God wants you to shine that saving light of Jesus into your life. Maybe that's never been the case. And today, receive the gift of eternal life. Maybe it's just a, a call, the alarm's going off, to wake up from, from dullness and enter into the adventure of faith that God has for you. Maybe there's an invitation out there to partner with the Holy Spirit and the work He's doing, to, to let Him lead, to be filled with His presence and His power. To be brave in our love and generous in our service to glorify the one who is worthy. Or maybe to encourage you to keep on being an encourager or to become an encourager and a prayer warrior for others. For all of us, our focus should be on the better things. God's work in us by His Spirit that produces fruit. His strength that works in us. His faithfulness that we can lean upon. We can grow in our relationship with Jesus and there are better days ahead. Hope for God's continued provision, His protection. Hope for that better place, that land of rest. So before we pray, let me just give you, you know, just a few things I jotted down in, in relation to this could be helpful. You know, personally, for you and for me, we have a constant need to confess, repent, and move on to maturity. Where we get stalled out many times is when we fail to confess, repent, and move on. It could be we were deceiving ourselves or we've been deceived. It could be that we're worried about the consequences. We're doubting God's love and His faithfulness. We're so heaped upon by guilt and shame. When we confess, repent, God allows us to move on, to move forward toward maturity. In our attitude toward others, we can't be sure about the spiritual condition of others. But we can be sure of this. We can pray that God would give them the gift of repentance. If you're praying for a loved one, if you're praying for a friend, if you're praying for a child or a parent, you're kind of in that stage of wondering, are they saved or are they not saved? Pray for God to give them the gift of repentance. That repentance will either lead them to salvation if they're not saved. It'll lead them back to the Lord if they are saved. Third reminder, everyone needs encouragement. That goes all across our community. Pastors to painters. Deacons to delivery drivers. Sunday school teachers to surgeons. Members to merchants. Teachers to Teenagers to school teachers and children to construction workers. The kind words you speak, the loving deeds you, pre you present to show the love of Jesus goes a long way. 
most of those things cost very little, if anything. And in case you're wondering, love and service for others is always in season. You can never go wrong loving and serving others. My prayer for us is that the quality of our faith will be displayed by the fruit we produce, God produces, the diligence of hope and service, diligence of the love and service in our lives, and the hope we offer to the world around us. And that all of those would be the glory of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are grateful today that while we probably just began to scratch the, the surface of the depth of your, your word in this passage, that your clear reminder us today is to don't fall away, but to move on toward maturity. And Lord, we ask for you to help us as individuals to be willing to allow you to search our heart, to see that it is possible to get unstuck, to get out of the mud, to confess, repent, and move on toward maturity. Or the Psalms tell us that you're able to lift us up out of the muck and the mire, to clean us off, and to set our feet on a rock. Give us a firm place to stand in Christ. Help us not miss out on what you have for us, but to move towards you. In our attitude toward others, Lord, help us to be prayer warriors to go to battle in the place of prayer for those around us, praying for the gift of repentance. Praying for the spiritual condition of the hearts of those that we love. Or that you would help us to be encouragers to everyone in all seasons and to not forget that our responsibilities are to love and serve you loving and serving others. Oh Lord, give us your help. Help us find our hope in you and set our minds on the better things that go along with salvation. All to the glory of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. We prepare to allow God to speak to our hearts and we listen before him. The music's going to Play quietly. It's our opportunity to respond in those ways that God speaks, whether that's responding to light and receiving salvation, whether that's just confessing or penning and being ready to move forward, committing yourself anew to the callings that we have to love and serve and to share. Um, all good things. Maybe there's just a burden. There's something burning in your heart and you just need to turn it over to the Lord. The, the front is open. The Lord is present and He hears and He responds. I'll be at the front if you need to speak with someone or need someone to pray with. But I ask you just to listen to the Lord quietly as the music plays and respond as He sees fit.
men. Without him, how lost we would all be. I want to thank you for being here for worship, for joining your hearts together in, in praise and your voices in song. Um, to encourage you this week that God is for us, he's not against us, and he truly has in store for us better things if we are, are willing. Just quick reminders, men, tomorrow, 6.30, Elk Diner, men's breakfast, ladies, Thursday evening, 6.30, um, for Ladies Connect. Um, with any of those, be sure and invite someone um, to hear what God is doing and is up to. The worship team is going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song as we close. So when we are finished singing, um, you're dismissed. May the Lord bless you. Oh, here I am.